Before we get started, I just wanted to share a little bit about our guest so you know what we're getting into. Dr. Brad Miller is a sports psychologist, but he's not just the one who studied the science and learned it and is now trying to make it work and apply it to sports. He's lived out the sports side. He played Division I soccer and played soccer all growing up, so he knows it inside and out, and now he's mastering his craft on the science side and just he's able to speak so well to the players experience and what players and coaches are going through all the time every single day right now so super actionable stuff that he can provide in this really great conversation it's exactly the type of thing that Omar and I are looking to do through this podcast so I'm really excited to bring it to you and hope you enjoy it. to another episode of Screaming at Kicking, the podcast for soccer coaches who are wanting to learn and grow. I'm Tyler, this is Omar, and we've got an incredible guest with us today, Dr. Brad Miller from Soccer Resilience. Dr. Miller, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Can you tell us how Dr. Brad Miller became Dr. Brad Miller? Just kind of the backstory and your background a little bit. So uh, soccer uh, was a, a big part of my life growing up. And that's where um, I kind of, you know, just found a lot of joy to relieve stress. And so um, when I was a you know a kid, I was this kind of big, tall, kind of center back, loved to, you know, kind of go against the top striker. And that was really fulfilling for me. Lots of fun. Had lots of confidence doing it. Um, not as much confidence with my technical foot skills, and that's kind of part of what got me to soccer resilience. So um, as time went on to high school, senior got recruited by Wake Forest, went to play at Wake Forest, uh, got there in the late 80s when uh, Walt Chiswich was my head coach and Jay Vitovich was the assistant. And uh, I was in technical skills. We had about 20, probably 25, 26 people on the roster. And literally, I was probably like about 25, 26 in technical skills. So I had a lot of work to do. Um, my as a defender, I could maybe step in and help out as a freshman, but technically I was a liability, right? I was going to lose the ball and not maintain possession, not really help going forward. So you had a lot of work to do, um, was really prepared to grind it out. That was a real strength for me to kind of persevere and push through. And I did and kind of worked my way in, you know, to, to more playing time. Eventually my last year got some significant starts and that was great. But one of the things that I didn't really share in that is that I had performance anxiety for the first time in my life. I uh, really had to deal with that, and I didn't really know how to deal with it. I kind of just white-knuckled it and just kind of wished it away, just kind of pushed through, hoped it would go away, um, and it did a little bit, but it always come back. Didn't tell other people it was kind of going on with me. It definitely affected my performance, my confidence, and certainly my joy at times. Um, and so when I graduated, I, I you know, wanted to kind of help people. I was interested in psychology, and so when I became a clinical psychologist, and then when I, I started working with athletes in my practice and they would talk about some of the things that I went through as a player, just that lack of confidence at times in certain moments and it would come and go and just getting in the way of their fulfillment and joy and their, their performance. And we try out different strategies and they would latch on and come back and go, Hey Brad, this stuff's like working. Like I'm feeling more like myself. I'm playing the way in a game, like I play in practice. And I just got really excited. Like, this is awesome. Like, I love it. Like, how can I do more of this? And so, you know, I've got two kids who are now 17 and 15. So life was just busy. I thought, well, I'll just do it through private practice. And uh, about three years ago, uh, one of my son's coaches uh, said, hey, I, you're a psychologist, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, can you help our kids? Like, they have a lot of skill, a lot of ability, but sometimes they have moments where they just kind of, in those tough competition moments, they kind of shrink a little bit. And I said, sure. And so we started doing some presentations and his name's Rene Ortiz. He's uh, really connected in San Diego. He's actually the Mexican indoor national team coach as well. And so he like said, hey, Brad, I know some other people. So I kind of started presenting at other clubs, did that for about two and a half, three years. And I, I got hooked on it. I, it's funny because I think about one of the first ones I did, actually about the third one I did. And this girl comes up after, it's like a U14 team, I think. And the coach comes up and says, hey, tell, tell Brad your story. So this girl goes, well, so I was playing in a game 
and I'm playing defender and there's like about five minutes left or something and I passed it back to the goalie, but it went in our own goal. And her face kind of drops down. I go, yeah, I go, that's hard. I got to play a defender. I, I, I've done that before. It's tough. And she goes, yeah. And the coach goes, well, tell her what you did. And she goes, well, so I, you know, talked to the goalie. And I'm like, wait, wait, you talked to the goalie about that? I'm like, that's awesome. Like most people never want to talk to the goalie about that. She's like, yeah, we talked to the goalie and the coach. We all got together and now we have a plan. And so we know what to do next time. And I'm like, that is awesome. I'm like, now from this challenge, right, this setback, you're probably more prepared and it won't happen in maybe a game you don't want it to in the future. And her face lights up and she feels so good and she walks off. And I was like, yeah, I got to keep doing this. And so um, when the pandemic came, you know, it was a Zoom presentation. So I wasn't doing it in person. That was weird. So I did that a little bit. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I can expand this to other places. And just with Wake, I have some connections with people who still coach and do things. So I was like, I can move to other parts of the country. And so uh, I just went on LinkedIn. I hooked up with uh, Wells Thompson, who was a Wake graduate as well, actually from my uh, hometown, Winston-Salem. We grew up, I mean, our home's like three miles apart, but we never, ever talked. I knew who he was because anybody from Winston who went on to play professional, I'm like, yeah, let's go Winston-Salem, right? So um, had a special place. And so we connected and he's been working with youth players, did some camps and coaching. And we like, let's combine forces. And then we started doing more with other uh, teams with a college uh, team and, and, and some new teams. And then we linked up with Matt Spear, who used to coach at Davidson for 18 years. Um, and then Jessica McDonald's recently kind of joined us in January. Uh, actually, this week, we announced that Walker Zimmerman from uh, MLS with the uh, Nashville FC and the U.S. Men's National Team, he's kind of one of our ambassadors. So we've kind of grown this project and it really just came from the, the things I went through that I wish I would have done different. And I used to regret sometimes that pain. Like, I mean, even as I tell you this story, I always had this twinge of like, God, man, you know, if you just talk to somebody, you've gotten some strategies, right? It could have been different. But I really do believe it's been a gift to me because it drives me and fuels me. I do not want other kids, whether they're playing college, high school, a pro to go through what I went through. And there's so many simple strategies to change it and make it shift that I didn't know and I didn't try. And I don't want other people to have to go through what I did. Um, so that's what really, really drives me with soccer resilience. One thing I'll say, Dr. Miller, is um, it takes a lot of empathy to go down the route that you did, just wanting to help people, wanting to make sure they don't go through the same pain as you. I definitely feel the same way when I coach my goalkeepers because I'm a goalkeeper coach essentially for, for UNCC. And, you know, I always tell them before every game when we're playing in front of uh, lots of fans in the stadium, I tell them, you have nothing to prove to anybody. If you make a mistake or if something goes against you or if the outcome of the game doesn't go for you, listen, nobody in this stadium knows the blood, sweat and tears that you put in. Who is Who are they to judge, you know? So I think a lot of young players need what you have to offer. Um, and just to kind of go off that, we get this question a lot, and I think you're the best person to answer this. What are some behavioral signals that indicate that a player or a coach is resilient? So what are you looking for? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So maybe I'll start with the player part. So, you know, um, you know, so Matt Spear obviously was a, a coach at Davidson for 18 years. And when we do uh, some Zoom presentations with clubs, I intentionally ask him this question, like, all right, Matt, so when you go on a recruiting trip, like, what are you looking for? Because before I, you know, to talk to Matt, I would say if I was a coach, what I would look for is I would intentionally seek out players that are playing in a really tough game where their team is not as strong as the team they're playing. I really, I don't want to watch them win 3-0, 3-1. I want to see what do they do when things are hard. And because that's what really separates people, right? Most players are skilled and talented. You find a lot of them, but who are the ones who can be resilient? So what I look for as far as behavior signs of resilience is what do they do when they make a mistake, right? That body language, right? Are their eyes level? Are they looking forward? Are they looking up at the sky? Are they looking down at the ground? Their eyes are level. Their body language says they're still engaged, right? Do they sort of like sometimes they kind of like, you know, clap their hands and kind of go like this, let's go. You know, do they say that encouraging things to their teammates, even to themselves? You know, they make a cross and they shank a cross and just kind of go, hey, come on, let's go. Like, how do they respond to those mistakes? Those are things that suggest about that resilience and ability to persevere and be back in the moment. Um, things that I look for would be uh, what happens when a teammate does something well, right? Can they kind of celebrate that? Because part of resilience is being able to enjoy those good things. So when the tough things kind of come, 
Um, what do they do when a teammate makes a mistake? That's huge, right? Do, do they go over and kind of go, hey, the goalie makes a mistake and the goal goes in. It's like, hey, we got 80 minutes. We got 80 minutes. Let's keep playing, you know, shake it off. Let's go. Those are things that I would look for, just that body language, eyes level, the way they communicate, what they say, um, and also their work rate. What happens when they lose the ball? Do they work even harder to get it back, right? When they make a mistake, how do they respond the next five, 10 minutes? Those things suggest to me that somebody's got that sort of resilience behaviorally with the coach uh, and in a lot of similar ways, right? What does the coach do when a player makes a mistake? What does the coach do when a goal gets let in that's not typical for them or the referee makes a bad call, right? Does the coach have eyes level with the players? Are they making eye contact? Are they engaging them? Are they reassuring them? Are they encouraging them, right? Is it the hands in the air and what are we doing? Why are you doing that, right? That clearly is not demonstrating resilience, right? But if it's a, hey, Brad, Brad, you have to make sure your goal side, he's faster than you. You got to give him a little bit of a cushion. They like to play over the top. They're going to beat you. You have to adjust, right? Giving me feedback, giving me instruction, but they're regulated. They're not yelling. They're not screaming. And they're like, Brad, I know you can do this. Make the adjustment and keep working for me. Right. That encouragement, that suggestion of we're going to push through. We might have some things go better. Those are things I would look for um, in a player and coach just behaviorally give us those clues of sort of resilience. And a lot of it really, guys, is regulating your emotion. Right. Who looks out of control? Right. That's not a resilient moment. Now, we often feel out of control to get to resilience. And I want to make sure that point's clear. Resilience is not I'm a robot. I just kind of, I'm not phased by things I go. We can be sad, mad, stressed, scared, worried, overwhelmed, frustrated, but we regroup ourselves, right? That ability to reset, that is a huge sign of resilience that I look for. So you can get frustrated and sad, mad, but you kind of collect yourself, regroup, and then you're back at it. It sounds sounds like a lot of body language in that, and that's something that your opponents can pick up on too as soon as they see you ragging on teammates or whatever it might be. I know... As a player, like as soon as other teammate, the other team started, you know, like getting mad when they didn't receive a ball or somebody let it go out of bounds. I'm like, yes, let's get after it. Like, oh, I can let's smell put it. them under. Yeah, I can it's, smell it when a team is anxious mm-hmm. and they're starting to turn on each other. Yeah, that's that's where you smell blood and you go for the kill. And and the reverse is true. You know, people in my own team. Yeah, yeah. So. What does, let's, let's take a look at maybe like a step-by-step process. What would that look like for an athlete or coach who wants to build resilience and learn how to be calm under pressure? Kind of where, where can they start with that? And as a coach, how do I go about building that into my team, my players? Yeah. So, so that first part about how does a player get more resilience, kind of that, that poise under pressure, right? And, and, and that, that confidence, sorry, how do you do that? And it really starts with emotional regulation, right? We have to be able to kind of get control back of our emotional state, our thinking process. So a huge part of that is, you know, I like to start with people in their mindset. Like, let's get the foundation. Really, confidence comes from a lot of that mindset. How are you viewing things? And so, um, you know, Carol Dweck's growth mindset, I love to start with players with that. Like, let's take a look and let's see where do you have more of a growth mindset, what areas of the game, and then what areas do you tend to have more of a fixed? And, you know, as you guys probably know, right, we're not just one or the other. We kind of swim back and forth. But usually players will say, I feel more confident. I feel like I want to challenge. I feel like even if I make a mistake, mistake in this area, I can rebound. And so we figure out what are those growth mindset areas that would be? And then where do you have more fixed? Oh, okay, when it comes to like corner kicks or set pieces, I just, I just, I'm just not good in the air, right? So there's a fixed mindset. Or when I make a run and now I'm going to make a cross, I'm just not good at crossing the ball. I can dribble through five people, but if you ask me to cross, oh, it's a nightmare. Or if you put me on the left side, I'm horrible, right? So you notice where those fixed mindset thoughts are, and we try to start correcting some of those. So we start with the mindset, okay? Now they believe that they work hard and use strategies. They can get better. They can push through, and you need those challenges. So once we've established that mindset, okay, the confidence is growing because we're not fearing mistakes, right? As you guys know, it's one of the biggest worries for players. It's the biggest confidence killers, that fear of mistakes. You help them understand you're going to make mistakes. Everybody does, right? So now that we've got that established in their mindset, let's go to emotional regulation. How do you manage yourself? Athletes absolutely need to know how to use breathing to regulate themselves, to reset themselves, to regain focus, to be alert, and to let that emotional intensity come down 
And also it's going to help their bodies, as you guys know, right, release some of that tension. The body now can respond the way you want to. So I really talk about breathing early on with, with the people I work with and have a, a reset that they know. And I kind of think of it in two places. There's a prevention mode and a response mode. If you're going to regulate your emotion, you want to be able to have like, what do you do when it gets away from you? So that's like a response, like a reset. You also want to know how do you help prevent you from flaring up as much and then having as much of an intense reaction when you do. And that's the things as you guys probably know a lot about, right? About like meditation, mindfulness, breathing. Those are the preventative measures that are really going to benefit you when those emotions run higher. So now the mindset's there. Now that we've regulated our emotion, we feel more in control of ourselves. Let's go to your purpose. Why are you doing this? Why are you going to put yourself in the stress of playing in front of people and coaches? And why are you going to do it? What's your value? Is it that I love to, to compete? I just love that competition. Or is it I want to go and play at a higher level? Is it that I want to help my teammates? I'm very connected to people and helping my teammates feels fulfilling. So when that purpose is identified, that's going to be a big part of confidence because you draw on that. There are times when, you know, for me, I was a very much a team guy. When I would struggle sometimes with confidence and things, I'd be like, dude, your team needs you, <laughs> right? You got to regroup, man, because like you still got to help your team out. And so that purpose was something. So purpose is big. Then the third part is perseverance, okay? How do you be confident? You believe you can keep working even when things are tough. So giving players those strategies, how do you persevere? A lot of it's reframing it in, you know, this is going to help me. I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to learn from this. I'm going to learn from this, right? What can I do better? What can I do better? And those are huge parts of that perseverance. And all players are taught that, hey, you know, just push through, right? I think that's what we're all good at. It's a fundamental thing of just push through and grind. That's great. What do you do when you can't persevere? Because everybody hits those moments, right? So giving them specific tools and strategies. And for us, it's really about having a plan. If you predict I'm going to have setbacks and I have a plan on how to adjust to them and deal with them, that's going to help your brain settle. Things can feel more predictable and you can practice that plan and practice. So then when you're in a game, it's more automatic. So what I kind of walk those first three things, guys, is, our, is really our four pillars of soccer resilience is take control, uh, develop purpose, build resilience. And the last one is enhance your performance, right? So in confidence is now I'm in the game time. What's my pregame plan? to get myself ready, right? What do I visualize on the way to the field, right? What's my sort of uh, way to get myself comfortable, acclimated? How do I have resets when my energy is going high? I find ways to kind of breathe to get myself in that optimal state of alert focus, not too high, not too low. And now when the game starts, what are my resets and adjustments I make during the game? So if you feel prepared, you're more confident. And people who know they can regulate their emotion, they have a plan on how to do it, a purpose and reason why they're doing it, are much more likely to have that confidence. And again, a big part is the expectation is you're gonna make mistakes. So you have to accept it. And the big deal is about what's your plan rather than I'm not gonna make it. Um, as far as how coaches can help instill that in players, I think that one, helping talk about things such as when they've had struggles. Coaches who say, hey guys, I have struggled with confidence at times. Here's where it was a real challenge for me in these types of situations. And this happens to all players at all levels. So it's going to happen to you. It's already happened to you. So let's have a culture environment where we can be safe and go, yeah, like my confidence can dip in this situation or in this situation. Okay, so let's acknowledge it. Let's make that something we can talk about. And then what's our plan on how to manage those situations? So coaches who make it okay to talk about I'm just not feeling as confident. I'm feeling more stressed. That's enormously helpful because when we name an emotion, it lowers the intensity of it and it makes it okay. And now not to fear coach knowing I'm stressed. Coach knows I'm stressed. And then this is what I'm going to do. And coach is like, hey, so what's your plan? What's your reset plan? How do you kind of get yourself there, right? And so I think those are things coaches can talk about with players. And if you have the option, maybe like at UNC Sharp, the college team, going through and walking them through those steps of self-regulation and helping them be able to do that, predicting challenges, but having a plan. If you struggle in a game with crosses, let's put in the extra work in practice to build some of that confidence through repetition. It's okay to struggle at first. You will get better, and then you have more confidence kind of in the game. Um, so there's a couple of things that coaches can do as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, so 
Great points, Dr. Miller. Thanks. Uh, Tyler has a follow-up question to what you just said. But yeah. first, I want to ask you just a quick question. Everything you said about mental yeah. framework, the mental preparation, having a structure in place when it comes to breathing, visualization, accepting that mistakes are part of the game, they're part of life, and being able to bounce back quickly. I want to get an estimate from you. How many collegiate athletes do that? Pr pr sorry, practice that. Is it closer to 10%? Is it 20%? Is it 30%? What's like a, the most educated, accurate estimate that we can say of college athletes actually practicing those mental skills? Well, that's a great question. I, I wish I had a solid foundation to give you that answer as I haven't really talked to a ton of college coaches, about some friends who coach college. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I would guess that realistically, I would think maybe... Boy, if 25% did, I would be shocked and amazed. That would be wonderful. I'm going to guess it's probably more like around maybe 10%. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, <laughs> it's it's a shame because, you know, you know we're, we're going to get into this later about why why it's so slow, why, why this type of mental training is so slow to catch up. And I, I think uh, uh, we do have a question later on about that. But I think it's just players seem to think that failure and success are separate. They, they're they're uh, on opposite sides of the spectrum. They don't understand that failure uh -huh. is part of success. That it's the building blocks. You have to fail multiple times. And I keep telling the the, the girls, you're, I'm gonna make sure that you fail multiple times at practice. That you're out of your comfort zone so that you reach that elite performance level. Uh, but throughout their youth, they're told that okay, if you make a mistake, that's a bad thing, and that doesn't help you progress. It's it's uh, it's a real shame. But anyways, I'm not going to take too much out of uh, time out of Tyler's uh, next question. Yeah, I feel like too, as you're more and more successful, like as a kid, there's probably not many that good players in your area. So you do really well. You move up, move up to the next level in club, high school, whatever it might be. You get to college, then it's like, okay, now I'm competing with people four years older than me. Like these are grown men basically that I'm playing against I'm just fresh out of high school and you start to see like oh I've never had this kind of doubt before like I've never never had issues trying to dribble around people you know what I mean and so especially the higher level athletes they're they're consistently successful 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 maybe untested relatively and then boom it's like oh I just jumped into the deep end here and I got I got to I don't have any type of tools or preparation for this kind of situation. Yeah, that's well said. I mean, that pretty much describes a lot of my experience at Wake Forest. I had started every game really I ever played, um, maybe my first year in, in club, maybe it took a couple of games to be a starter, but um, that that was my expectation. And, um, you know, I, I shied away from the technical part because I would get rid of the ball as fast as I could. And I kind of got away with it. I was a true sweeper back in the day. And so it was okay. And I avoided it. And then eventually you get to a point where those things you've avoided and neglected will come back to be needed. And now you really put yourself in a hole like I did for myself and just adjusting to what it's like coming off the bench. I mean, it was, and I knew I was going to like not start. Like I knew that as a freshman, I had enough awareness to go, <laughs> yeah, you're not going to start. But the reality of living it was hard. It was really hard. Like, you know, to go to games and to work so hard and go to games and go, Hey, Brad, your job is to be a really good teammate. And fortunately, that was something I took a lot of pride in. I really did. But it's hard sometimes to know that your game is a warm-up and you're not going to get on the field and you're going to cheer them on and do whatever. And it's hard to the ego. It's a tough adjustment. If you've never had to deal with that part, then it's kind of been a disservice to yourself. So, yeah, I, I the kids I work with, especially with players, I'm like, hey, I know this is tough what you're going through it is, but I am so glad this happened to you now. You don't want it to happen to you at 18, 19, 20, because your brain is going to be so ill-equipped to deal with it. This is great. It's happening to you now. Let's figure out strategies and deal with it. So we were taught the confidence equation where confident thinking plus confident behavior equals confident feeling. And I think we have some really good like you have some really actionable items, you know, like finding your purpose, your why, building your mentality and mindset, kind of that foundation, uh, getting your reps in, especially in practice and things and just planning, even just having a plan like when this goes wrong, how am I going to respond? Who am I going to 
look to or talk to or who, who am I going to count on? How am I going to reset? What are some other effective ways that we can enhance that confident thinking, that confident behavior in order to really solidify that confident feeling? Yeah, so I think that, I think I mentioned before, right? So to me, a lot of confidence is preparation. It really is. And so we are, and I love how visualization gets incredibly helpful. Obviously it is, and we have lots of research to back it up. And a lot of visualization is let's focus on having things go well, good energy, good focus, and you know performing well, executing well. And that really is helpful, as you guys know, because now the brain is going, okay, the same neural pathways get activated in visualization when you actually do it. So your emotional part of your brain thinks you've actually done it, and it gains more confidence. So the part that we often don't talk about is what do you do, as I kind of mentioned, like when you're not able to persevere? What do you do when you're kind of just stuck? Your emotions are getting the best of you. You're just having a hard time getting refocused again and you'd have a plan. So something we call is the triple P's, which is you predict the challenges, you have a plan for them, and then you practice them. So what we'll ask players to do, and we kind of start with practice and say, hey, when you're driving to practice, I want you to predict two or three challenges you're going to have today, two or three setbacks. Maybe you have a mistake or a setback in a passing drill, maybe in a shooting drill, maybe in a one-on-one defending, maybe in a scrimmage. And okay, so those are going to be a couple of challenges you're going to have, right? Now, what's your plan on how you respond? And it might be, okay, when I lose the ball, I tell myself, recover, 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 and I get back as fast as I can behind the ball, try to regain possession. Okay, that's my plan. It might be when I shank a shot, hey, next shot, next shot, next shot, right? I might take out my, I like to do triangle breathing where you kind of do in for four, out for four, hold for four. I might just do a little bit on my on the emblem on my on my uh, shorts and just do a in for four, hold for four, out for four. That's my reset, or just an in for three, out for three. But I have a plan for what I'm going to do. Okay, now I want to keep practicing that plan of practice. Have that every time I go to practice. So when I get to a game and I lose the ball, my brain knows to recover, recover, recover. When I shank a shot, my brain knows to go next play, next play. When I'm just at not focused, not concentrating, I just do a little in and out triangle on my emblem and now I'm back to reset, right? So we need to have a plan for when things don't go well. And the really value of that is we feed our anxiety when we worry about something. We often do go, oh God, I just, I just don't want to worry on the way of the game. Okay, I just, I'm having a good day. I'm feeling good. I just don't want to worry. Or I just, I just hope I don't shank that cross. Or I just hope I don't like miss that header today. And as soon as we tell ourselves that, we just fed that worry, right? We took that worry and just made it way bigger. Now, when that happens, our brain totally flips its lid. The thinking part of the brain's not running the show. The emotional brain is. Feelings become facts, and it's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I shanked a cross. Okay, I'm probably gonna have maybe two or three crosses in the game, so you shanked one, it's a bummer. Your teammates are mad because they worked super hard to get you that opportunity, but you probably got two more coming. So again, the most important play is the play we're in, so let's sort of go, okay, learn from it and take a better first touch and maybe that cross comes better. So that when we sort of have those plans in place, now it's an opportunity for them to feel more confident and kind of know what to do. Um, so just those triple P's is really important for them to kind of prepare for that. Usually it's like, I'm gonna have a great game, things can go perfect, and we're gonna have some challenges. And it helps them stop fearing mistakes. And so when you know it's coming, your brain settles down, it's wired to get very scared and stressed when it's a surprise. Um, and so when we know it's coming. It's like, okay, yeah, that sucks. Bad call. Somebody got injured. Red card happened, but I know how to respond. Yeah. You know, Dr. Miller, um, I, I usually say something to my players and I want you to tell me if I completely missed the mark, but it's, I'd say to my players, you have to make room in your life, especially in, in sports for a little bit of negativity. You know, I just don't think it's realistic to be positive a hundred percent of the time. You know, we're just not wired that way. It's not possible. You can't be positive from 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 dusk till till dawn. Wait, from dawn to dusk. Um, so, you, I, like, something I say to them is visualize a mistake, and then visualize your recovery to that mistake. So, if you take a heavy touch, how do you respond to that? And that way, when it happens in real life, it's sort of like innate. It's like instinct. You're going off memory but memory that never really happened, you know, if that makes sense. Uh, I don't know. Am I getting the right message when I say that, that they should make a little bit of room for a negativity? Yeah, you know, well, and, and, and I just think of it like in preparation, right? 
It doesn't maybe need to have a label of negativity, but it's just like, hey, let's predict some of these things that aren't going to go well, right? Every game, I, I forgot the quote from Mia Hamm. I think she said like, you know, every practice we're going to have, you know, mistakes. Every practice, every time you play soccer, every time you lace them up. And so I think that, yeah, let them know this is part of the game and how you're going to respond. Because our brains are wired, you know, 80% of our thoughts on just the average day are negative. Our brain has a huge negative bias. We're wired to stay alive and be safe. Our brain's going to over-predict negative things. It's going to see things as way worse than they're really there. And where our brain's wired to ruminate on them and perseverate on them and kind of forget the positive experiences. So it's like the triple whammy of negativity. So players are worrying about mistakes whether they talk about it or not. When we just say, what's your plan to deal with that? Now they have a plan and they feel more in control, right? But we don't want to feed the players worry. So when you say, hey, let's talk about a couple of mistakes that are going to happen today. And here's what your plan is. You've told them, oh, it's okay. Coach isn't freaking out. Okay. So then I can have a plan and you try to reframe what mistakes are. They're just part of the game and you need to adjust. And they are opportunities, obviously, for us to learn from those things, too. If a team goes, you, know, you guys as coaches, right? If your team goes 12-0 and 0 and they're killing it and they come to practice the next day, you're like, hey, we've got to really be locked in. How we practice translates to the game. Let's be focused. Part of them is like, freaking 12-0, and 0, man. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm good. We're crushing over here. You know, I'm good. And they're not going to be as alert. But when we have some of those setbacks, it grabs our attention. That sting doesn't feel good. I don't want to feel that way again. So maybe I'm going to listen more to my coaches and kind of get a sense of what we need to work on. So for me, my recipe for success, the success is three cups improvement, one cup setback. Every three successes you have, I like one cup setback because we have opportunities to learn with each setback in ways we don't learn the same way with successes. We do learn with success, by the way, if we analyze it and go what worked. So it is very helpful, but we really learn more from what didn't work. And now we've got to add something in. So if my team goes, you know, I don't know, nine and three, there's three opportunities where we, would, we had clear demonstration. We needed to grow and improve and be better. If we're 12 and 0, it's like, yeah, coaches, I know what you're saying, but let's be honest, man, <laughs> we're doing pretty good over here. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's that's a much better way to, to label it. Um, and now just getting into the topic of arousal, because we, we're constantly mm -hmm. trying to balance whether we're too aroused or too casual in a game. And I was reading a book by Dr. Pete Temple, which referenced a study back in 1908 uh, by Dodson and Yerkes who were studying the relationship between performance, thinking, and emotion. And they found that a person's uh -huh. performance improved with mental arousal, but declined when the, when the person became too aroused. So kind of like feeling flat versus feeling freaked. And so how do we, uh -huh. you know, as coaches, how do we help our players find that sweet spot where we're not flat, but we're also not freaked. We're right in that, in that zone where, uh, where we're excelling at our best. Yeah, it's a great question. So I'll answer that maybe in two ways. The first one is how do we just get a player to do that for themselves, right? And then maybe how can a coach help that too? So there's a breathing technique that I love. It's called 424 breathing. And it's in through the nose for so it's only nose of breathing. So it's in through the nose for four, hold for two, and then breathe out through your nose for four. And what this is, what I love about this, this type of breathing is it's designed to really regulate us. So most athletes, well, if you guys were going to guess, what do you think most athletes, their either motor runs too high, they're too keyed up, amped up, or their motor runs too low, they're just not really into it. What do you think is the, the bigger challenge? They're amped up. Yeah, too, too amped high, up. I would think. Yeah, right? They're too amped up. Most elite athletes tend to have more anxiety. They tend to be more perfectionistic, high standards, and that's what helps them work really, really hard, right? Most athletes struggle more with being too amped up. They tend to maybe overthink more, too keyed up, too excited, too amped up. Now, sometimes it can be a little struggle. My motor's too low. I've got to get more energy focused. But what 424 does is it regulates us back to that peak area where, you know, sort of like a, like a bell curve, right? Where that top of that sort of bell is right there. That's where that 424 takes us. So if our energy is too low, it gives us nice energy and focus to be where we need to be. If it's too high, it regulates us kind of back. So what I would do is tell players about 424 breathing, help them practice that, make that part of their pregame routine. So when you are one, you need to practice it every day for at least about two to three minutes. So you get better and better and better at it. 
And the more you practice it, the better you'll be and the more results you'll get. So a player now needs to do 424 breathing. And then I would make that part of their pregame ritual. Maybe as they're walking, you know, before they walk to the field or whatever it is, they have a little privacy. They do that for about two, three minutes to regulate themselves. And then they just do it through warmups as they need it, right? Just kind of doing that 424 breathing. They can do it like during a game, it's kind of like a reset. And that's really a way to get them that optimal level of arousal, right? And, you know, coaches, what they can do is you could have this discussion. Hey, here's this wonderful tool called 424 breathing. And this is what it does, this is how it works. And you could say, so let's just all sort of talk about it. You know, let's see hands. Who tends to be, you know, their engine runs too high and everybody can raise their hand. This would be most of the players and some too low. Okay. And so you just talk about this works for both. And it just explain to them that kids just don't know this. They don't know about how the brain works. They don't know about why they get aroused. They don't know about this, like the normal response to being excited, looking forward to something. And they don't really know what it means. And so there's so much demystifying of what happens to the body and the brain that can really help calm them. And arousal is a great thing. It's like, hey, you don't need too much, but you don't want too little, mm-hmm. right? So just even coaches having that talk, it is so amazing when a coach talks to that, players are like, wait, what? You know, I mean, you guys have such a wonderful opportunity with players to do that. So that's what I would do. And as a coach, I would just talk about that and say, okay, if you're feeling a bit too keyed up, let's take a breath in. Let's take a breath out. Okay, release that stress, cleansing breath. Okay, hey guys. We're a, little, we're a little tight, big game, okay, breath in, okay, breath out, okay, cleansing breath, okay, good, muscles relaxed, okay, and if that's part of what's does in practice, in warm-ups, during practice, during games, it can be incorporated, now players do it, and if you just do breathing throughout a game at times, it has an enormous impact for players to get that optimal arousal level, and what I like about 424, you can say, have you ever had a game where just it takes like 15, 20 minutes to get your head in the game. You know what I mean? Your body's in it, but just your head's not, right? And then it starts to click. Well, if you do 424 breathing, you make it way more likely. Your brain is all ready to go, alert, focus. You're arousing at that optimal level, right at kickoff. Uh, Dr. Miller, the 424, how many, how many reps, how many times should they do it? So, you know, it, it's, it's sort of the more you can do it, the better. Right. I think it's really nice if you can do it for at least about two minutes. Um, You know, three can be wonderful. If you've got five, fantastic. If you've got, you know, um, 20 seconds and you just do two, two reps of, you know, four, two, four, that's okay. If you have eight seconds in for four, out for four, but that four, two, four just kind of balances you out really nicely. I love it. So that's something that I've just been bouncing around my head forever and hemming and hawing a little bit like, uh, should I try and do specific breathing work with my players? Should I? I don't know, but now I'm gonna do it. So I have you to thank. I'm definitely gonna definitely gonna do it. So move forward with that. I'm excited. Yeah. If I can toss in one thing too, um, uh, one of uh, uh, our teammates in soccer resilience is um, John Blake. He's a coach at Ledford High School, and so it's really fun. Like he, uh, he's got a couple of videos on YouTube about his team. You can kind of follow through COVID. Uh, but he was telling me they had a game where they had a really tough loss. And he said he got on the bus with them and they were really frustrated, dysregulated, and he had them do breathing. And he said that it kind of worked. They got more calm. And then they could talk about, okay, hey, we've got a, this amount of days left before practice, a practice for our next game. And I'm like, you did breathing with your team on the bus? I'm like, that is awesome. Right? I'm like, and they actually, he goes, yeah, they actually kind of used it. Right? So, you can as coaches, if you guys have confidence in it and you explain them why, then they'll buy in. If you go, this is what professional athletes do. They go, watch Ronaldo before he takes a free kick. What does he do? He breathes in, cleansing breath, and then he kicks it. NBA, pick your favorite NBA player. What do they do before a free throw? Bounce, bounce, bounce. And you take your shot because it releases the stress in your muscles so they're ready to go. When you explain that to kids, they're like, Okay, a little more receptive. Yeah, having that tangible benefit, I think, is is really cool and helpful. And just like, just so it's clear and it's not just some abstract kind of like, all right, we're going to do some weird breathing stuff, guys. Let's go. Like, giving them something <laughs> to easily latch onto and that they can relate to is, I think that's huge for, especially for kind of younger crowds. It is very much so. And it is a challenge to get younger kids to breathe. 
It, it really is, right? So it's not the only strategy. It's just one of the most effective, efficient ones. And we need other strategies too. But if you go, if you guys want to put the brakes on and get yourself locked in, back in play the quickest you can, you can let your brain try to do it, which is going to flood you with a whole bunch of negative thoughts. And that's a big uphill battle. Or you can just breathe and reset and then you're back to where you want to go. How influential would you say is body language, body language on your mindset? How much of an effect does that have? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'm sure you guys are familiar with, you know, some of, uh, gosh, I'm going to forget her name. Is it Amy Cuddy? Is that, am I saying that right? Uh, Amy Cuddy. I think she's the one who talked about like, the, the, the yeah, power yeah. poses and Superman pose. Yeah. Yeah. So she, um, she had a great Ted talk for your listeners. She has a shorter one, about six minutes, a long one, about 20 minutes, but you know, just where she talks about the power of power poses, right? Have you guys heard that research where they kind of put mm -hmm. you through, you know, so, you know, for your listeners, they can kind of like look at it, but if you do these power poses for five, uh, for two minutes, right? And then you do like a, a, a low power pose, the difference in testosterone and cortisol levels, it, it's pretty amazing stuff. So um, I, I love stuff like that because I, I, even though I'm a psychologist, I'm very skeptical about a lot of things. And, and to your listeners listening who think still breathing is, is not really a thing. I was so not into breathing mindfulness meditation. I'm like, this stuff doesn't work. It's just, I live in California. I'm from North Carolina. This is what California people do. And the science backs it up. The science, you cannot dispute. And, and athletes will tell you it really works. Um, and the same thing with that body pose. So I really honestly haven't used a lot of that before, but I've, no, I've known of it. Um, and so, you know, it, 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 it's got me kind of curious, but absolutely like our, our body sends messages to our brain about how things are going. Right. If I just put my hands in my head right now and shake my head, I automatically feel a little bit more kind of like, you know, not as, but if I'm just like sit up in my chair and I'm just like, all of a sudden I have more energy. And so body language is huge and it's such a simple tool. And for the listeners out there, especially for youth players, please hear this. So many of these tools sound weird and strange and like, you're not going to do them, but they really work. They're not even that hard to learn. You just got to stick with it. So to me, body language is very, very important, right? What it conveys not only to us psychologically, like what it activates in our brain as, you know, um, Amy Cuddy's studies show, right? Just that our, we're more alert, we're more focused, we're kind of more ready to go, we're more confident. So body language is a huge way to reset ourselves. And the body language we convey to our teammates has a big impact as well. And that's where you guys as coaches do the same thing. I remember, especially as a high school player, um, even at Wake Forest, when my coach was calm, I was kind of calm, right? My coach is like hands in the air, walking around doing this. I'm just like, dude, you're freaking out like me. That's not good, you know? And so you guys have, a, so your body language and how you influence and just letting, especially those sort of leaders on the team, the ones who kind of people really listen to and gravitate to, talking to them and saying, your body language is essential. You don't know that people are watching you and, and, and picking up on that, right? And so just letting them know that that does have an absolute impact on, our emotional state we're in and sort of our confidence levels. So yeah, body language can be very important. The reason we thought of this question about body language is because I'm, I'm sure I mentioned this to you when we spoke privately, Dr. Miller, but Tyler and I coach against each other. So he coaches for and I coach for and that's the biggest rivalry in Charlotte. Nice. And I show up on game day dressed in all black with a beard. I look like a sultan. I'm, listen, I'm ready for a war, right? And then I look across the field, and he's wearing golf shorts and a fedora. Not no, a just fedora, the, the not complete opposite of me. But we, I consider us both to be resilient coaches. And it's funny what you, what you said when we spoke privately is that resilience takes many forms. You know, it's not just a stereotypical one way that a person can be resilient. Just, just to clarify on that. I'm very pasty, so I have a nice safari hat. Keep me, keep me hey, in the sun. I can relate. And also, it's a good thing for me. Like, I definitely took myself way too seriously for a long time. So I try to find some ways now to kind of go out of my way to not do that. So it, it's been it's been a good uh, good option for me in that department for sure. That's great. Well, and you know, truly, what. And you're right, resilience comes in lots of forms. And as a psychologist, I have worked with people who they come in and are overwhelmed. They went through some really hard things, overwhelmed, stressed out, or like things are really difficult. 
and they'll say, oh my gosh, I feel so weak right now. And I'm like, man, you are like so strong to be able to be vulnerable, right? And share things and be open. That's what real strength is. And that's what's required to really connect with your teammates, right? Vulnerability is huge, right? And coaches to do that, right? And just to say, hey, you know, we all have struggles. Here's some things I've struggled with. Here's how I try to deal with them. When I was a player, you know, let's have an open policy. We can talk about these things and we can kind of figure out ways to help them manage it, right? Because of course, the things off the field absolutely affect players on the field and vice versa. Um, and so resilience, that doesn't always mean like, you know, in, in Jordan, uh, when we do a presentation with kids, we have a picture of Michael Jordan show a 30 minute clip video or 30 second video of him doing all of his highlights. And then we'll say, so what do you think the first thing Michael Jordan did when he got cut from his high school team as a sophomore? You know, they're like, went to practice, practice harder, you know, was, was mad and got better. I'm like, those are things he did. You know, the first thing he did, he went home, locked himself in his room and he cried because it hurt. It was hard. He was embarrassed, felt humiliated, thought he was going to be on varsity. So this is part of resilience. And then he sorted through that. And then he went to school early before practice started and did that. And that's how he got better, made varsity next year, went on to obviously continue great things. So I love that story because I want players to know, yeah, man, this is part of, this is what resiliency is. It's not just being a robot. It's you feel it, you manage it, you hang in there. And then you get support around you. If you don't have a strategy, you find those strategies to kind of go on. And, you know, that's what, it, what I told the players once after a loss. I said, you know, resilience isn't when you're winning 3-0 or winning 4-0. And it doesn't mean that you don't feel self-doubt or you're not self-conscious. It's especially when you feel self-doubt and self-conscious and embarrassed and you feel like you're not good enough. That's where the resilience uh, kicks in. Just, just as you said with that example with Michael Jordan, I think that sums it up perfectly. Um, I guess now we're entering into why most people are still not into this extremely necessary part of life, not just, you know, psychology and training, uh, psychological training, but we are better trained today physically and technically and tactically than we were 20 years ago. You know, fitness regimens revolutionized. Just every athlete is, can now run better, lift more. Tactically, we're experimenting more with different formations and tactics and uh, different game models. But the mental game seems to have stagnated and we're still the same in terms of handling mistakes as we were 30 years ago. Um, so my, my question to you is, why is sports psychology the one field that people are, are that has stagnated, essentially, that hasn't, you know, moved on with the, the physical, the tactical and the technical side of the game? Yeah, well, I think a, a big part of it is that last word in that sports psychologist, the psychology part, right? There still is, and, and things have gotten a lot better, um, especially in the last year. I know you guys have seen a lot of athletes come out and share a lot of stories. Uh, love of Michael Phelps, DeMar Rosen, Kevin Love, um, you know, the list goes on, right? Talking about um, even Lewandowski, you know, just people talking about some challenges they've had. And so I think that that's a big part of it. Whenever you put the word mental, right? Mental health, right? It just means you're taking care of your, the mental side of your life, but it has a stigma to it. So sports psychology, you know, that in sports, I believe it's that just the culture can be, especially I've never played professional sports, but I'd imagine that just gets much, much more that, you know, you look in around your locker room and these are like, you're competing with them, your teammates, you're competing with them. And so um, that I think that just that, that, that philosophy of, I can't show weakness, if I tell somebody that I'm stressed or worried or confused or not as confident, then what's coach going to do with that? I mean, as a college player, you know, if, you know, Walter J, one of those few times my last year I got to start, you know, Jay comes in, someone's injured, so I got this opportunity to start. If he came in and goes, so how you feeling? You know what I said to him? Good. He's going to play against Virginia, biggest game of my life. Inside, I'm like freaking the heck out. I'm not going to go, well, actually, I'm really nervous. Gosh, my heart's pounding fast and my head's racing and, I'm having all of a sudden doubt and confidence, you know, I'm not going to say that. And so I think that that just gets perpetuated, right? So that that's the part about, we don't want to be vulnerable and show weakness because we think that people are going to judge us in a harsh way. Teammates, coaches, we're going to lose playing time opportunities. I think that's a big piece. I think that um, it, it's, it's hard because the tangible results can be harder to see. It's like breathing, right? that some people don't feel as much of a change until they breathe for about a week or maybe even two sometimes. 
right? But the expectation is like, as soon as I breathe in and out, okay, I'm like better, right? And so I think that a lot of the strategies we use, it's harder to quantify. How do you measure somebody making progress? You can give them a rating scale, right? And say, hey, rate your stress here, do these things, what's your stress level, right? But that's kind of subjective. There's not, you know, if, if I'm working on fitness and I can do the beep test and knock off 20 seconds, my fitness has gotten better, right? That's a consistent, objective way. So I think it's hard to measure. I think the, the, the stigma of mental health gets associated with uh, sports psychology rather than seeing this as a way to promote well-being and feel better. It actually, pre it's a preventative measure to help you be more focused. It's kind of seen the negative way. Um, and I think that, you know, that the, that the male mentality in sports culture, right, has changed. I mean, sometimes it's funny working with, uh, uh, you know, teenagers who are girls and boys versus those teams and the kind of open discussions you get in the conversations. Um, it's just very different. And so I think that, you know, for men in sports, particularly, we're just socialized. You don't talk about those things. Why are you going to do that? Suck it up and just deal with it. And, you know, now women, you know, in athletics as well, right, there's challenges for them to share things, the same kind of worries that they can have as well. I think those are some of the big, big things that pop up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And just off the top of my head, I remember watching an Amazon uh, series called All or Nothing, and it followed the Philadelphia Eagles. Mm -hmm. And that's, a, that's an NFL franchise. That's like the cream of the crop. And there was one player on that team who, God, I'm, I'm such a terrible host, I forgot his name. But he, he suffers from anxiety, and he literally uh -huh. walked off the field in one of the games. And so in the press conference, they asked the, the head coach, what happened? Why did he walk off? And the coach said, well, he has severe anxiety, you know? So like, it's so brave to come out and say that you suffer yeah. from that, especially in such a cutthroat yeah. environment where it's all result-based, it's all uh, money-oriented, there's millions of dollars on the line. And he just put his hands up. He goes, no, listen, I'm going to throw up. I need to walk off the field. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, yeah. I was doing my advanced national goalkeeper diploma. And we were being quizzed, uh, what's the most fundamental, uh, most important aspect of goalkeeping? And then they said psychology, the technical attributes, tactical or physical. And they had us all vote. And then our instructors put up 10 elite level goalkeeper coaches. Nine out of 10 said that the psychology was the most important part. Pretty, pretty self-explanatory. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and as soccer is saying, so we talk to a lot of clubs um, and a lot of people are interested. And, you know, it's kind of like we, we get the feedback that almost everybody's, yeah, the mental training would be great. But then it's, you know, wanting to invest in it. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, too, because how do you do it? Right. It's like lots of things. It's like, hey, Brad, uh, exercise more, get better sleep, eat healthier. Okay, but how do you actually do it? And I think that that's a hard thing too. A lot of people just aren't given the, the tools and strategies on how to do it. It's like, hey, coaches, you guys coach kids, so help them be more mentally tough, right? Help them be, you know, persevere and, and manage the stress. Okay, but how do we do it? Well, you know, you just tell them like, hey, hang in there. Be I mean, it's like we need tools and strategies. And you guys as coaches know coaching is such a tough job now. Gosh, especially just so many parents wanting to – you know, why isn't my kid playing in this position or why aren't they playing enough minutes or, you know, whatever the case is, there's so much pressure on coaches with youth coaches um, and, and, and just college coaches too, that there's so much on your plate. You're trying to juggle so many things. And now you want me to find time and a practice to also, right, do the mental side. And it, it, it's a lot to ask. And so, you know, it, it, it's something that we really love to at Soccer Resilience is we say, let us take that off your plate. Right. Let us work with the players and we're going to give you a lot of strategies and work with the coaches and go, here's things you can do. Here's practical things you can do. Here's ways you can help your kids. And we do it kind of together, you know, because the coaches reinforcing that is hugely important in the environment. But the kids just need some of that instruction. I mean, to ask the coach, hey, can you spend like, you know, one, two, one and a half hours every week and just talk to your kids about like, you know, mental fitness strategies? Are you kidding me? You know how much stuff I'm trying to cram into what I have right now? It's, it's too much. And so I think that's a challenge too, is to practically, how do you put that into practice to make it work? Yeah. And I don't know if Tyler agrees with me and I'll give him a chance to probably not. to, to, vol to volley this back to me. But I, I think coaches, especially in the, in the region where I am, and especially in the United States, especially at the youth and the collegiate level, they have to do better. I really 
don't see enough coaches investing energy and time to create good memories for the players. And I just think ignoring the psychological side, you're ignoring the, the most important side of the game. Yeah, especially for these players who, I mean, 0.1% or whatever it is that are going to go play professional. Soccer is part of their life and they, they're there because they love it. So how can we keep the focus on what truly matters, like long-term versus if you don't show up and score a goal, like you're on the bench, son, like get out. Like if you can't do what I need you to do, get out of here. You know what I mean? Like how can we keep the focus on what matters and like give them, use the game of soccer to give them these tools so that when they're out in the workplace or they're raising a family, they're ready to handle high pressure situations. They're ready to recover from mistakes. You know what I mean? And that's, it's such a huge privilege to be able to do that and do it in such a fun environment. Like we love the game. They love the game. We're equipping them for life. And it's so much bigger than like, all right, you didn't score a goal today. Come on, dude, get out of here. You're, you're molding a young person, you know, like I just want to create good habits. You know, I know how small that number mm-hmm. is that turn pro. So I'm not, tr- I'm not even trying to, to create professionals out of 13 year olds. I'm just trying to create good habits like hard work, resilience, grit, integrity, benevolence. If I can do that, or at least twenty percent of that, you know, I'm 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 satisfied. I've I've heard just kind of explained, you know, like if you so much of us, whether it's college or even higher level, like we get used by our sport and kind of chewed up and spit out. Like you you put your identity into it, you mess something up, you ha- you grow into this performance anxiety, all these things, like. If you can use your sport to grow as a person, to learn and like be more whole as a person, especially off the field, you've won. Like you've you've done some of, some of the best things you can do in sport. It's not about wins long term. It's not about records and things. Like if you can use your sport to grow, you've you've won. You've done the best and most impactful thing that you can do. Yeah, well, and it's really great to hear you guys say that. And, you know, there there are a lot of coaches like you guys who do care about the mental side and really are trying to help their players and trying to instill that it's about how you respond. Um, and, and it's always, for me, exciting when I hear you guys as coaches share those kind of ideas because there are coaches who are doing that, right? There really are. And there are some coaches who haven't learned it yet and some coaches who maybe just aren't really going to be very open to it, even with exposure to information. And, and Tyler, I really liked that you brought up that aspect about that performance identity. You know, so many players have a performance identity, meaning that, you know, they're, how good they feel about themselves is how well they play. When I play well and do well, I'm on top of the world and I'm happy and in a good mood. When I play poorly, I just feel awful and very negative and kind of down and withdrawn, right? Or irritable and agitated. And a big part of what we do at Soccer Resilience is like one of our core values is more than an athlete, you know, that you're a person first, you're an athlete second. And if you want to be a successful athlete, we honestly believe that's the formula, right? If you don't want to go on and play at a higher level, if you do, it's a, it's a better formula, right? It's that fixed mindset kind of perspective. It's that performance identity because now you just are afraid of losing it, right? Then you play, to not make a mistake, right? You play to keep your status. You play to keep being a starter. You play so that you can look good. And that becomes the focus rather than growing and getting better and learning. And so, you know, when, when they have more of a purpose identity, right? My identity is that I am a hard worker who pushes through when things are tough and I support my teammates and I might not have my best game. I might not be in the best focus state or, you know, skills aren't, aren't quite shown as much, but I am somebody who works hard and tries to help my team. Right. Those are things we can control. Right. We can't always control our well, we can't control our performance in the very end. We can do things to make it more likely. At the end of the day, sometimes we're just not as focused as we want to be and our skills just aren't as sharp. We can try to reset and regroup and get them better. Um, but focusing on those things that we can control, which is our sort of effort and our attitude um, is huge. So, so I love hearing you guys say that. Awesome. Two things. As we're heading towards closing down here, this has been fantastic. And I really love just some of the tools and strategies you've given me to be able to apply and, and put into action. What is something in your field that you're excited to learn more about in the future? 
And then also one thing that's outside of your field that you're excited to be learning about in the future. Okay, that's a great question. Um, I think for me that I am just so fascinated by the brain that I have found it's enormously helpful to help educate uh, players, coaches, parents, everybody that what the brain does, right? The brain's negative bias, right? The default mode network or monkey mind, whatever you want to refer to and how it's just going to go down the negative track. It's going to overly predict negative things. It's going to hyper-focus on things that aren't really that negative and dangerous and make you think they are. And you just kind of churn on them. So I totally am fascinated to see about what's going to continue to grow in technology. How we do brain imaging scans and situations, right? Like how we can do brain imaging of players, why they play. Like that would be amazing. It would be so cool to see, right, what we see them and just kind of bridging that gap in technology. You know, I, I, I laugh and tell my kids that in 30 years, your kids are going to look at us and go, you guys only knew about breathing and meditation and mindfulness and visualization. Oh, my God. How would you guys not know about this, this and this? It's hilarious. You guys are so lame. And so, you know, I, I, I look forward to that. And I think because I was a skeptic for a while about those strategies that it, it's been great because I totally get why people don't want to buy into it and why they're skeptical. And I just know there's so much more um, we're going to learn about those uh, areas. So I'm super excited to see what they can tell us more about the brain and how it works and how we can help continue to train it in ways that are more helpful, override some of those default mode network of those negative kind of bias. Um, outside of my field, wow, that's a great question too. Uh, I'd be curious to learn more about this is kind of weird, but I would love to play guitar. Love to play guitar. My daughter's got a guitar, you know, and so she's kind of trying a little bit, getting kind of started. And so we'll, on Spotify, we have a called Music Challenge. We share music back and forth. And so I'm like, oh, and so she's like, likes like, you know, the old school back in my day. I'm like, oh, have you heard of Van Halen? Listen to Eddie Van Halen. And yeah, the song's a little cheesy, but just listen to the, how it starts, right? And so we kind of go back and forth. So I would love to learn more about guitar. That'd be cool. If I could retire and rock out and play guitar that'd be pretty cool well dr miller in saudi arabia we love don't have it, guitars but we have those loud drums that we <laughs> that we play ah. in soccer, soccer games it's not as nice Let's as go. guitars <laughs> but it'll do the trick that's right that's the, right uh, the extent of my guitar and basically musical expertise comes with like guitar hero so <laughs> i don't have much to offer as far as any type of input on that. That's that's my musical yeah. genius there. I am I'm glad Guitar Hero is never in my house because I would have been that person who's up at four in the morning and my kids are like, What was that sound last? I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I totally would have been doing that. So it must have been the wind. That's great. It must have been the wind. That's Omar, right. anything you wanna add? No, just I want to thank Dr. Miller for, for taking the time to come on. You know, we, we get a lot of questions about these things and it's nice to have an expert, someone who has so many years of experience in this field to educate us as well as the listeners and just, you know, lift lift the veil and, you know, just, just embrace these these really necessary steps to progress, not just in soccer, but in life. You know, I, I, I told the girls the other day, you know, you came to UNCC, you were a somebody before UNCC, you're a somebody now but you're going to be a better somebody when you leave. So that my job is to turn you into better people as well as better, better athletes. And I, I don't always succeed, but I really try, <laughs> try my best. Uh, but thank you so much for coming on, honestly. And I really hope we haven't completely embarrassed ourselves and that we, we hopefully have you on again with a completely new set of questions, because I feel like you're, uh, there's a whole well of wisdom and knowledge that we, we want to explore. Tyler and I want to explore. Uh, well, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been awesome. Awesome uh, getting to meet you guys. Love talking about soccer. And it's always inspiring to me that, that coaches who are really invested in the mental side for their kids too. It's great. I think as long as they don't copy you exactly, they'll probably come out better for it. Like, so, I, so yeah, they should not copy no me. No copy pasting. Do not. Just like grab I was a rapscallion when I was their age. <laughs> Make sure <laughs> Do not you write down a lot in the what not to do column, you know, that you can always learn from somebody no matter what, even if it's what not to do. So <laughs> make sure you keep that column pretty, uh, pretty active. 
But Dr. So, Miller, thank you so much again for coming. Can you please tell our listeners what's the best, you know, website where where can where can they reach you to learn more about you and and your uh, practice? Yeah, so so soccerresilience.com uh, is is a really good landing page. Um we have all of our resources there, uh videos, articles, um kind of testimonials to learn more about our why, why each of us has kind of had our own struggle um, on a mental side of soccer and how it affected us and why that gives us passion to work with players now. Um, if uh, We have some really wonderful uh, videos on our YouTube channel, Soccer Resilience YouTube channel, um, for parents, for coaches, for players. Um, you know, Wells talks about, Wells Thompson, uh, MLS Cup champion, nine-year pro, talks about a lot of things he did as a pro. Um, Matt Spear talks about coaching. I talk about parenting. We give tips and, for players. So a lot of really good short videos to say, oh, here's a challenge. You can scroll through, have like 30 videos. Oh, this is one right here. I can learn this. Bam, got a tip and can kind of move forward. So on the usual social media as well, you can find us on um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram as well. And please like our uh, Soccer Resilience page if you're interested and uh, have some good articles there as well. Oh, we will do that. So what, let's say there's a club or coach or whoever it might be. What are you offering? You know, what kind of things can you do working with them? Yeah, so uh, we really like to be relational and not transactional. So we really like to develop a relationship with the club. Uh, one club we've developed that really great relationship is Charlotte Independence. Um, Thomas Finley's done an awesome job, uh, brought us in, and we've really kind of immersed ourselves in their culture um, with the coaching staff. Uh, they've been on the Zoom presentations we've done with the top 30 teams at Charlotte Resilience. We're looking to add more teams and kind of continue some of the ones that we've done. Um, so we come in and, and really kind of figure out what are the things, the needs of the club, uh, the strengths that they have, um, what are areas they want to improve in their players' resilience. Um, and so we really kind of dive in and come with a plan and say, okay, what's the best way to serve the club? Uh, right now with COVID, we're doing Zoom workshops. As that keeps getting better, there'll be more in-person workshops. Um, but so we can kind of do that for a team, for a club. And we kind of go through, we can do kind of three presentations to cover lots of things or kind of one big introductory to do that. Um, we're also uh, going to start a subscription service coming out. It's going to be a Soccer Resilience FC, and it's something online. Uh, it's going to start in April. Um, we're really excited about that. It's going to have a lot of our content so players can go there, and it's going to be lots of things from the start they can do. There's going to be information for coaches, for parents, and then we're going to add in content kind of a, as we go along, probably like every two weeks or every month to have more information so players can go read about an area they want to focus on, like take control or perseverance or purpose, read it, have some videos. Then here's a, you know, a specific plan you can do to practice that. So it's a nice resource for coaches too. They can go, oh, here's some strategies and tools that I can find um, to use. So we're excited to have that come out soon as well. Dr. Miller, thanks so much for being with us. We really appreciate you taking the time and just sharing so much with us. Uh, one of these days when Charlotte FC starts playing, we're going to have to get you, get you out here and catch a game. That'd be awesome. I'd love it. That'd be great. Thank you for everything, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. Please take a moment to like and subscribe, share it with your friends, give us a comment for what you think, and as always... We'd love to hear about how you're applying these principles and what you're learning to your training sessions going forward. And we'll see you next time.